In our current culture, as most cultures before us, but more so in our current culture than, than some, there is a focus on joy. There is an intense focus on self-satisfaction, on happiness and achieving joy and self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment and happiness. We have an expectation of happiness at all times. We have come to believe that we must be at Disneyland at all times, the happiest place on earth, right? Only I've been to Disneyland. Have you been to Disneyland? I've been to Disneyland. It's not the happiest place on earth. Kids are screaming all throughout Disneyland, not with joy and delight, but with sorrow and despair and rebellion and sinful dispositions against the mother and father who were mad enough to bring them there before bringing their rebel hearts and souls under some concept of discipline. It's a futile effort to find yourself in the happiest place on earth when this earth is filled with sin and the wage of sin is death. And even a place that's dedicated to being the happiest place on earth, you'll find tears throughout the entire day. And especially at the end of the day, when you get on that train again to go back to your car, the tears are flowing freely <laughs> from your own face <laughs> and those of the people around you who are barely surviving. Now, that may be a slight exaggeration, but not much, not much. So we live in a fallen world, and in this fallen world, sin runs amok, and the wage of sin is death, and that's immediate right now. Uh, death in our own mind, death in our hearts, death in our souls, death in relationships. There is suffering in a fallen world. And so to expect happiness all the time is an unrealistic expectation that produces what? More unhappiness. More unhappiness. An expectation of constant happiness produces more unhappiness, more dissatisfaction with life. We need a realistic expectation now, I'm not going to encourage you today to be pessimist in Jesus' name, so you'll be happy. <laughs> if you always expect bad and sometimes you get good, you'll be happy. Run with it. That's not the message. Nevertheless, there is an unrealistic expectation in our society of perpetual happiness all the time. Our society is an entitlement society with an entitlement mindset, and that's not just a political word. It's a psychological word. It's a mindset. It's a disposition, an entitlement disposition. Alongside and exacerbating the problems of an entitlement disposition and mindset is the victim mindset, the victim disposition, that we are victims, that we are entitled. And then coming alongside that and further exacerbating the issue is a sickness mindset, that there is a sickness, that the prevailing problem of mankind, the prevailing issues that mankind deals with are tied to sickness, a mental sickness or disorder of one sort or another. And there is a herd, a herd of what some affectionately call quacks or shrinks or psychologists or psychiatrists or counselors lined up 
to diagnose you, to give you your diagnosis, your disorder. But the vast majority of these diagnoses and disorders are directly attached to what the Bible calls, wait for it, wait for it, it's complex concept, sin. Sin. And what happens is when we sin against our Creator, the lights on the dashboard of our soul begin to blink. Warning, warning, the engine's going to explode, right? See mechanic immediately. And various other warnings. And what psychology as a rule does, and psychology doesn't always fly under the name of psychology. There is, psychology has permeated our culture. Your friends and neighbors are psychologists because all the television shows they watch and all the books they read, even the fictional accounts, fictional works, are filled with psychology. And so we're surrounded by psychologists. You don't have to go and pay and sit on a couch. They're everywhere. And they will speak to your sickness. They will speak to your disorder. They will speak to your brokenness. Because that's the mindset, even in the body of Christ, that has come to prevail rather than a mindset of sin before a holy God and the wage of sin is death. And you feel when you have sinned, you feel what? How do you feel when you sin and you're experiencing the wage of sin? You feel bad. Bad. It's complex, I know. You feel bad. You do. You feel guilty. You feel shame. You feel depressed because the wage of sin is death. Now, not all of our bad feelings and not all of our depressed moments are directly tied to our sin. Sometimes it's tied to the sin of others, but it's still tied to sin and the wage of sin being death as a rule. Now, to say that, doesn't rule out the fact that there might actually be a physiological problem with a few individuals. But I will put it in that category, and I want you to put it in that category because that's the biblical worldview. I also want to challenge the idea, challenge the idea that psychology knows what it's doing. Because you'd have to ask which field of psychology. You'd have to ask which psychologist in that field, because even within the particular fields that disagree with each other, there are those who disagree that hold to the same field. And they disagree not just on one issue, they disagree both on the problem, the diagnosis, and then the solution. How to fix the problem, the sickness, the disorder. And so this is far from an exact science, and yet we find that this pseudoscience, this thing called psychology, is prevailing in our culture and is 100% contrary to the biblical worldview of sinner. That we are a sinner before a holy God and the vast majority of our problems are directly due to our sin. And those that aren't directly due to our sin are most often due to the sins of others and not some actual physical malfunction of chemistry or brain or whatever you want to blame on it. Animal magnetism, that was one of the very first theories. Animal magnetism. Your animal magnetism was off, and so you were emotionally off. And so they would actually use magnets (laughs) to fix your animal magnetism. 
We've progressed a bit from there, but not far, truthfully. Today, it's largely psychotropic drugs in the place of magnets. And you get your diagnosis, you get your disorder, and then you get your psychotropic drug or drugs cocktail. And through that, we're seeking happiness because we must have happiness. And so we're willing to do anything, even skip reading the label on the medication. The label that warns you of the very problems you're trying to relieve through the drug being caused by the drug. Depression, suicidal tendencies, murderous tendencies being caused by the very drug you're taking to relieve depression and manic swings of emotions. Saints, the vast majority of what the psychologists call disorders, the Word of God calls sinful behavior and thought processes. And our minds need to be renewed by the Word of God. In our current psychologized culture, we find that, sadly, our ladies, our dear ladies are being caught up in this even more so than the men. It's the men who started this. It's the Freuds and the Maslows and the Skinners and the Adlers that started this pseudoscience. But now it's our ladies that are getting swept up in it. 76% of those graduating with doctorate degrees in psychology are women. 67% of the patients of the psychologists are women. But it's not just the women. One-sixth of American adults are taking a psychotropic drug right now. One-sixth. And I've got to challenge you, challenge our culture that we're all part of, How is it that we ever got by before these drugs and their catastrophic side effects got into our bloodstreams? How is it we survived by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through His conquering of sin and Satan and death on our behalf, through the indwelling Holy Spirit walking in the light of the Word. How is it we ever survived with such paltry means until we found our chemistry sets and our diagnosis? And by the way, how is the most psychologized culture that has ever walked the face of the earth, America, how is it doing? How is our mental health? Better than ever? with all of our specialists, better than ever with all of our chemists, all of our pharmaceuticals. No, we're suffering more than ever. Because when you make it your focus to be happy, happy, happy all the time, to always live in the happiest place on earth, when you have a Disneyland expectation, you will never be happy. Because what what you've started with is not a love of God and a love of neighbor. But what you've started with in your I must be happy all the time disposition is a love of self. God's first and greatest commandment is not thou shalt be happy. It's thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. 
and thou shalt love your neighbors yourself. In the pursuit of these commandments, you will find happiness. You will find joy. You will find peace. Because that is a summation of righteousness. Love of God and love of neighbor is a summation of righteousness. And the fruit of that will be joy and peace and rest in your soul. But as you pursue happiness, you're pursuing self-love. And that is sin. And you will not find happiness. You will not find joy. You will not find peace that surpasses understanding that Jesus has promised to those who pursue Him first. And so the psychologized way that our culture has been swallowed by is a way of suffering and a way of death. The biblical way is a way of true joy and peace that surpasses understanding, meaning surpasses circumstances, surpasses this world. We're the most comfortable, the most well-fed, the most pampered society that has ever lived and yet we're the least happy. You can find people that don't have running water, live hand-to-mouth, meal-to-meal, truly pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and mean it. Sleep on a grass mat in a hut with a mud floor that have much more joy and peace and daily satisfaction than the average American and have never heard of all these psychotropic drugs and couldn't possibly afford them if they had heard of them. And if they read the label, they'd think, what madman would take this? Dear saints, the Lord would have you to experience joy through His means by not foremost seeking joy, but by foremost seeking Him loving Him and loving your neighbor as yourself. Our text for today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. We'll not finish this text. We'll start, as I said, this will be a two-part sermon. Joy and thanksgiving. Joy and thanksgiving. I, as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, I want you to have joy. But I've got to warn you that the world's means of getting that joy will find you wanting again and again and again and again and again. I want you to have joy. I want my wife and my children to have joy. I want you, dear brothers and sisters, to have joy. I want your joy to be full. And the Lord will make it full, as full as it can be in this fallen world. Your joy will be as full as it can possibly be in this fallen world by seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, by leaning not on your own understanding or the understanding of this fallen world, but upon the Lord. And the Lord has promised that your joy will be full in glory to come, in heaven to come. And that's the realistic expectation, that I will not have the fullness of joy now. I will have the fullness of joy later. I will not have my best life now. That's realistic. I will have my best life in the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells after my Father has wiped away every tear. In this world, there will be suffering. 
But we have access to peace that surpasses understanding through Christ Jesus. Joy and thanksgiving. Philippians 1 through 9, let's read it together. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Dear saints of God, Take three of those in the morning and you'll have joy all through the day. That's the biblical prescription. That's glorious. The real question is, are we going to believe God or are we going to believe fallen man? It doesn't take much research into the psychologists behind psychology to know that they are exceedingly fallen. They are sexual perverts. They are into the occult, into spirits, necromancy, Ouija boards even. And I'm not talking about a few psychologists. I'm talking about the men who established this field we call psychology. God is the God of truth. God is the God who created you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what's going to bless you. He knows what's going to destroy you. And this is His true word and the true path to joy and thanksgiving. If you struggle with joy, if you struggle with peace, go here and stay here and let this word, let this scripture saturate you and renew your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Read it and reread it and reread it and pray over it and study it and memorize and believe God and ask God for the faith to believe God. And you will have victory. The greatest victory you'll know this side of glory because it's after this life that full victory is experienced where there's no more sin and no more death and no more pain. And the Lord, our Father, has wiped away every tear. And so let's break this down and find the joy and thanksgiving the Lord would have for us. First point, joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. 
you, imperfect saints. Joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. The imperfect saint you're married to. Joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. The perfect saints that you raised. It's your fault, isn't it? You raised them. But the ones you raised up and have now professed Christ and are following Christ behind you. Joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Joy in and thanksgiving for in perfect saints. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. That's the heart of the apostle. That's the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And those two coincide. It's both the actual heart of the Apostle and it's the actual Holy Spirit-inspired text. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown. This was a good day to come to church. Today you're here because to some level or another, you recognize that these saints are beloved And you long to be with them. They're your longed-for brethren. And maybe you didn't get as far as them being your joy. My joy or crown. But saints, this should be our heart. This should be our mindset toward the body of Christ. Now we come to church foremost not for the body of Christ, not for other believers. We come to church foremost for God, to worship God, to be in His presence, to be beneath His Word, to be conformed to His image, to the renewing of the mind, the washing of the water of the Word. Holy Scripture, to lift up our voices and praise Him. But secondly, after we've loved God, we want to love our neighbors. We want to love the saints of God and encourage them in the love of God and have iron sharpening iron and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord together. And so the heart of the apostle, filled with the Spirit of God, is reflected here. And this should be our heart, beloved, beloved, beloved. That's how we should think of one another as beloved. Now, Your wife is your beloved, and you are hers in a very special way. And that's a biblical term we find in the Song of Solomon, and many have embraced, and I rejoice in it. And yet the Lord in His Scripture refers to the saints. The Apostle Paul, in God's Word, refers to the saints as beloved. Now, I love my children. I love my wife. They're beloved. And and that's a different level of beloved, if you will, not to diminish that. But yet we are the body of Christ. In fact, it broke out in discussion at the supper table last night, extended family all there. The, The conversation was of Christian things most of the time, some of the time. I don't know the percentage. But this portion of the conversation was about brother and sister. And how down south, everybody's brother. You know, it's Brother Bill and Sister Mary and Brother Ted and Sister Samantha and on and on, right? And how sometimes it seems a bit religious, a bit overplayed, a bit cultural and not sincere. And I don't want to judge anyone's heart. 
But what I want to say, and what I said at supper last night, was that that is a biblical term. And not just a term, that's a biblical reality. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's how we should feel. And while we don't want it to become cliche or just some religious thing we do, to some level we should use the biblical terminology as a reflection of a commitment to the biblical reality and even a reflection of a heart that actually feels that way, that we're beloved, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have been bought by the blood of Christ and brought into the family of God. We've been adopted for real by God through the blood of Jesus. That's a high adoption price. And we might, you know, have our challenges. Our psychologist friends would call that dysfunctions or dysfunctional. (laughs) We might have our sin challenges in the body of Christ, but we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. And we consider one another beloved when we're thinking biblically and when the word of God has renewed our minds. And so joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. I can tell you, that without God's imperfect saints, I wouldn't be standing in the pulpit now encouraging imperfect saints to be more perfect through the washing of the water of the Word. God's imperfect saints blessed me, encouraged me, strengthened me. We're able to say, albeit imperfectly, follow me as I follow Christ. And I was able to look to their example and follow it imperfectly and now say to others, follow me as I follow Christ. And the Lord means that to be a blessing. I can say honestly that I wouldn't be married today except for the body of Christ and the example of the body of Christ to me and my wife. We went for years early in our marriage. Two unregenerate sinners married each other. You know, that's like declaring war. (laughs) With a kiss at an altar, right? And then God saved me. And then God saved her. But we still had a whole lot of bad software in our heads and in our hearts. And we needed the Word of God to replace that bad information, those really bad ideas, with the truth, the eternal truth of God's Word. What a man is, what a husband is, what a woman is, what a wife is, what a marriage is, what a family is. Oh, yeah. We were way ignorant. And ignorant would be kind. And week by week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, church was like a lifeline. The body of Christ was a lifeline. The saints of God were a lifeline. Paul and Carol Broach, by name, were a lifeline. Blessed us. Strengthened us. Encouraged us. Just by sheer example of living as saints of God. As loving each other as saints of God. And loving us as saints of God. Albeit imperfect saints. Each and every one of them. Each and every one of us. And yet immeasurable blessing flows perfect blessing flows through the imperfect means of the local church the family of god the beloved thus we should long for the brethren we should not easily miss the fellowship of the saints we should desire to be together with the brothers and the sisters of the Lord, the blood-bought children of God. Paul goes on to say, my joy. So beloved, long for brethren, my joy. My joy. Now, as you recall, in all of Paul's epistles, he writes to churches that are imperfect. (laughs) He usually begins kind of positive. 
hey, you guys, you're doing great there. Love you. That's super. And then he addresses some things that need addressing. All but the epistle of Galatians follow that pattern. Even the church of Corinth that was a train wreck. He opens up very positive, very loving, very affirming, and then he brings correction that desperately is needed. But Galatians, they're abandoning the gospel, and he comes in and he kicks the door down and brings needed theological rebuke to the church of Galatia. But he felt of Christ's church, he felt of his brothers and sisters, that they were beloved, and he longed for them, and they were his joy, my joy, my joy. What is your joy? See, you you are responsible for what you decide is your joy. If you decide that the things of this world are your joy, I can guarantee your joy will not be full. Because everything in this world is passing away. Even the good things are passing away. And some of the best things, your fellow human beings that you love, they're all going to pass away. They're all going to pass away. And while you can have some level of joy in them, if they are your joy, then your joy is fleeting because life is fleeting. And everything in this sin-affected world is passing away. The wage of sin is on it. Death is on it. And so we need to seek joy in that which is eternal. We need to seek joy in God and in the saints of God, and not just joy in having them now. We need to understand with a mature Christian mind, we want to have joy in having them forever. And have a great peace that when they go to glory, they have gone to glory. They haven't just died. They've gone someplace. They've gone to be in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord has received them, and they're now experiencing the fullness of God's love. And I can have great joy in that sorrow and the loss, but great joy in their gain and the fact that I haven't lost them permanently. It's only a brief moment, just a vapor that will soon dissipate, and you'll see them again in glory if they're in Christ Jesus and you are. So what is the grand goal? What is the grand purpose of life? to glorify God in the ministry of the gospel that sinners might be saved, that we might be in glory together. But when you try to find your joy elsewhere, you'll never be satisfied because you'll always lose those things, always. There's this great series of children's books about this raccoon. I wish I'd thought about this before so I could give you the actual name of it. But this raccoon is awesome. He's just like you and me. He blows it all the time. And then he learns profound lessons by the grace of God. And it's just a wonderful illustration. But this one of these raccoon books, maybe they're still in the nursery, I don't know. One of these raccoon books, he has this ball. And this ball is everything. This ball is his joy. And the ball ends up nearly costing him his foolish life. And then he learns, I believe from the line of the tribe of Judah, he learns that the ball is not his joy at all but the Lord is. Great storybook for kids and adults alike. All the things of this world are just like that kid's ball that eventually rolls off and goes down in the gutter. It rolls off under the refrigerator where all Super Bowls go, right? That's where they all are. Never to return. (laughs) And so that cannot be your joy. These saints of God can be your joy. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ and they're headed to glory. And when their blessing, when their prosperity, when their encouragement, 
when, when their lives magnifying and glorifying God and their testimonies are drawing others to Christ, when that is your joy, your joy will be full. And when above that, <coughs> the Lord is your joy, your joy will be full. Beloved and longed for, brethren, my joy and crown. What have you set your joy upon? What do you think is going to be the source of your joy? Have you set it upon that which God says should be your joy? Which God says will be a genuine source of joy or something else? Something else. See, the world's counsel will never point you to have joy in the Lord and joy in the Lord's people as your beloved long-for brethren, as you walk together in the service of Christ, making much of Christ, that sinners would be saved. Joy and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He loves them. He longs for them. He exhorts them to stand fast in the Lord, beloved. There is joy. He delights in them. He longs to be with them. He longs to bless them. He wants to see them blessed. So he says, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. I exhort you today, stand fast in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Set your feet on the rock of Jesus Christ. Not on this earth, right? You think you're on the rock just because you're walking on this planet? This planet will soon be dissolved. You're not on the rock. You're on nothing. You're living your life in thin air, trying to find joy in something that will soon be dissolved. Everything that comes in this world will soon be dissolved. Therefore, how should we live, says 2 Peter? Holy, righteous. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. Now, I looked up. Sintiki, and there are at least three, four, five ways to pronounce it. So if you don't like Sintiki, you go ahead and pronounce it how you like. Sintaichi? Sintish? I mean, some of them were, what? what did you, I listened four or five times. I still couldn't get it. What, what are you saying? Greek is a second language for all of us. And these are Greek names. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What's that mean? They weren't. That's what it means. They weren't. (laughs) We need to be of the same mind in the Lord. How do we get the same mind? The mind of Christ, the Word of God, renewing our mind, the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That's how we get the same mind. We're united together in the same mind of the Lord. We don't want to be double-minded. And we don't want the body of Christ to be double-minded. And once we leave the Word of God, now we've got all sorts of minds going on, right? I think this, I think that, I feel this, I feel that. We want the mind of the Lord. We want the Word of God to be our worldview and our disposition, to be the master of our mind and our thoughts and our emotions. Our emotions flow from what we think, right? If we think marriage is a good thing and marriage is honorable and marriage is not to be violated or ripped asunder as the word of God says and that God hates divorce, then in those movies and songs that celebrate the ripping asunder of marriages because look, here's a handsome fella. 
Or here, look, there's a really nice gal. Then we don't feel real great about that. We don't follow the movie line. We don't follow the plot of the song. In our hearts, we think, ah, maybe that's not so good. Nah, not good. And mind you, that's a worldly mindset that's trying to get you to consider the fact that, you know, your marriage, especially in those hard punctuated points, as every marriage will have, your marriage, you know, it could be left behind. A lot of water under the bridge. And there's happiness over there in that other field. The pasture's always greener on the other side of the fence, right? How many movies and songs and television shows are telling you the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? It's a lie. It's a lie. An exceedingly unregenerate friend at the gym told me this week, I've been married 16 years. I said, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. That's, that's tremendous. What a blessing. Always trying to sow in some truth, some path back to the Lord. And he said, yeah, my wife asked me if I was up for another 16, and, and he, he laughed. He, he said, yeah, you know, I don't want a whole other set of problems. <laughs> but while that might seem bad, actually there's a lot of truth in that. You bail on your current marriage and your current wife, that's all you're getting is a whole other set of problems because you brought your sin into the second marriage and your wife's going to bring, your new wife's going to bring hers. So figure it out the first time around by the grace of God. We need to be of the same mind as husbands and wives. We need to be of the same mind as children and parents. We need to be of the same mind as brothers and sisters in Christ. The mind of Christ, renewed in the mind. What God says is true is true, and everything else is a lie. We're of the same mind. And therefore, we're able to work together quite peaceably and joyfully. We reject that which is contrary to the truth, and God is the truth. I implore, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, not to have petty disagreements over things that do not matter, but to come beneath Christ, to get on board with the mission of Christ, and to love one another as sisters in Christ. Verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, one, obviously, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're brethren. What is our identity? We're fellow workers. We're fellow laborers in the gospel. We're true companions. We're companions in this thing called life. We're to walk through it together busy about something. What are we busy about? We're laboring in the gospel. We all have a role to play. You're not all going to labor in the same way I labor, but we all have a role to play in that labor. Hear me, there's one great mission. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll remind you again, there's a reason there's a cosmos and our solar system in it and our planet in that and trees on this planet, and it's for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the creator of the cosmos might come into his creation, suffer and die on a tree, crucified for sinners, rising into the third day, conquering sin and death for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, putting his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment, his love, his grace, his mercy, all on display there in the cross. 
And he invites us to be part of this great work. Why did Christ Jesus come into the world? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so we as brothers and sisters in Christ are brothers and sisters not to just each other. We're brother and sister of the Lord Jesus. That's what he calls us. And he is our head. He is our Lord. He is our King. And we are true companions with each other and with Christ. And we labor in Christ's gospel together as the saints of God before us labored. And we are fellow workers, labor workers, fellow workers for the gospel. And praise God, we know what we're about. We know who we are. We know our identity. We know what we're doing. Now, you have subplots within that, right? You do. You have jobs. You are wives, your husbands, your parents. You have subplots within that. But when you're asked who you are or what you do, or when you think about who you are and what you do, and I, I shared this with some folks this week, and it just, it's kind of a, a beautiful way to think about it and kind of a mind-blowing thing. Paul Washer was asked on a plane, what do you do? And Paul Washer said, oh, I, I'm a husband. I love my wife. They said, no, 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 what do you do? Oh, I also, I, I'm a father. I love my children. No, no, what, what do you do? Okay, I, when, I, when I have time, I also preach. And that, that's much more the mindset you should have. What do you do? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a minister of the gospel. I labor for the glory of God in the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners might be saved, born again from above, made new creatures. And then, yes, I also have this job. <laughs> Some call it a career. And I do enjoy that. But that's just a means for me to glorify God in the workplace and to minister the gospel in the workplace and provide for the ministry of the gospel outside of the workplace and to provide for my family. But that's not my identity. That's not my identity. That's not who I am. Fundamentally, who am I? I'm a Christian. Years ago, my first speech, you know, in high school, I failed speech. I refused to get up. You might think, yeah, I've been listening to this sermon. I, I get it. <laughs> failed speech. Shocker. Um, I failed to get up. So you fail a speech, right? I'm not going to get up. I'm not going to do it. Nothing I want to say in front of a group of people. F, fine, I'll take it, easy. And it became another nap time, hour nap every day. In college, I got an A in speech. Why? Now I had something to say because now I was a Christian. And the first speech they had us do in a secular college was, who are you? The professor figured that'd be an easy speech. Well, it was easy. Who am I? I'm a sinner, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and went into the full gospel, and even given invitation <laughs> to repent, confess Christ as Lord, complete with tracts, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone after class. Praise God, it was a wonderful opportunity. That's who I am, and that's who you are as a Christian. That's who you are. That's what you're about. You're a sinner saved by grace, made a saint of God with a mission to seek and to save the lost because that's Christ's mission and you're not alone in it. You've got fellow warriors. You've got fellow laborers. You've got co-laborers and companions in this work. 
that Christ has called you to. That's our identity. And we're imperfect in it, right? But we have joy in and thanksgiving for imperfect saints that are busy about glorifying God and the mission of Christ as Paul did before us. Second point, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Now, verses 1 through 3 are a blessing, and there will be joy there. There will be cause or thanksgiving there. But verse 4 is the heart of the matter. Second point, joy in and thanksgiving for a perfect God. Now, you can find much joy and cause for thanksgiving in imperfect saints. And as I look back on my Christian life, I have much joy and cause for thanksgiving for imperfect saints. But as I compare that joy and cause for thanksgiving to my joy in and thanksgiving for my perfect God, there really is no comparison. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. It's like putting it on repeat. It just keeps repeating. You find joy in the Lord, and you keep finding joy in the Lord, and you keep finding joy in the Lord. You set your heart to rejoice in the Lord. You set your heart to find your joy in the Lord. Do you think you'll be disappointed? If you truly by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit of God, set yourself to find your joy in the Lord always, you will never be disappointed. The Lord has set His love on you. He has set His love on you. He has elected you. He's predestined you. He has chosen you. All biblical realities. And then He went about to save you. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die, taking the fullness of eternal wrath on your behalf. And Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus, your Creator, came into this creation specifically to die for your sins and take eternal wrath in your place. That's the love of God for you. Jesus cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, so that you, dear saints, dear brother, dear sister, so that you would never be forsaken, Jesus was forsaken on your behalf. This is the love of God for you. And he died taking the wage of sin, which is death, on your behalf. And he rose, conquering sin and Satan and death on your behalf. And you in Christ have conquered sin and Satan and death. It is certain. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. And nothing, nothing in this world, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. He is the author and finisher of your faith. He'll not let you go. Not one will be lost from His hand. He is the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. He loses no sheep. 
Not one soul will be lost. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is just the beginning. All the glories I just spoke of, which I've just touched on, there's so much more to those glories. All that evidence of love, all that proof of love, all that magnificent display of love is just the beginning. There's eternity to come. An unfathomable eternity to come where you will abide as a child of God forever under the full love of God your Father. I've said it before. I'm quite sure I'll say it again. But imagine your very best day with your earthly father. Your very best day. Very best hour. Those sweet moments. Those sweet times. That is the smallest foretaste of what you will have for all eternity. From your perfect heavenly father. Who has set his perfect love upon you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Dwell on these things. Dwell on the glory of heaven to come and the love of your Father there waiting for you. Dwell on the truth that Jesus spoke, the eternal truth. Those who have left or lost, mother, father, sister, brother, and all this world has to come, they will be rewarded. They will gain in glory to come. Believe Jesus. You've not gotten a raw deal following Jesus. You've not gotten a bad deal following Jesus. I warn you, Ray Comfort popularized this illustration of those who go around with a bad gospel message saying, put on this parachute, it'll make you more comfortable in life. You'll enjoy the flight more. Right? And the picture is now someone with a parachute on in an airplane all hunched over, everybody laughing at them, their back's starting to hurt, they're getting hot. And they were told, put on the parachute, it'll make life better. You'll have your best life now. All about happy, happy, happy. Happiest place on earth. Put on this parachute. Well, that's not the message, actually. Jesus said, follow me and you'll suffer. But you put on this parachute because, see, this plane, it's not going to land. It's going to crash. It's not going to matter how uncomfortable you are because the plane's crashing. It's not going to matter how many people make fun of you for wearing the parachute because the plane's going down in flames. And that's a certainty. So with the right gospel put on this parachute, it's going to save you from the crash to come and the fiery blast below. Oh, that's, that's entirely different. And so your experience is different. Now the the crook in your back and the jeers and the mocking and the laughter. That's all worthwhile because very soon that plane's going to go down and the flames are going to come except that you'll be floating through the air saved to that parachute on your back that was so inconvenient for a season that brought trials and tribulation for a season that brought you the mocking of the world for a season Rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't say rejoice in life always. Rejoice in your job always. Rejoice in a back that doesn't hurt, in knees that don't hurt always. Rejoice in kids that obey always. 
You have any of those kids? <laughs> Rejoice in a wife that is always as loving as you'd like or a husband that's always as loving as you'd like. Anyone have one of those? Well, all the songs promise that, don't they? Don't they all promise that? Isn't, it, isn't that what the songs say? If you can just, just find that right one. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then guess what? Your marriage will be better. Your t- kids will at least seem better. <laughs> you have to set your, your sights on the right place. Where do you think you're going to find joy? In perfection, that's where you're going to find joy. In the God who has set his perfect love on you, that's where you're going to find joy. In the God of all truth, that's where you're going to find true joy. You can get pseudo joy, false joy, fake joy, pill joy, drink joy, sex joy, action joy, horror joy. You can get all sorts of joy in this world that is fleeting and wanting and often will come with consequences that will not be joyous at all. But the Lord commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't stop there. He says again, because we're thick-skulled and quick to forget. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is life-changing truth, saints. It may seem simple, But as you dedicate yourself to this task, as you prayerfully engage in this task of deliberately seeking joy in God and not this world. Now, there are things in this world that are joyous as you receive them as gifts from God, like your wife, your kids, your husband, even your job, even that jerk of a boss. He's a gift from God that you might love him even though he's being a jerk and bring the gospel to him knowing that but by the grace of God you'd be the jerk boss <laughs> and you may yet be a jerk boss <laughs> to somebody and so you have the opportunity to love him and to grow in sanctification rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice if you think Drinking from a poisoned well is going to bring you satisfaction and quench your thirst. You're wrong. Drink from the well of God's Word prayerfully and regularly. And your thirst will be quenched. Your appetite will be satisfied. Your joy will be as full as it can be in this fallen world with a realistic expectation that your full joy comes in glory, not now. But as you can borrow from glory, as you can borrow from eternity by looking there through the lens of God's Word, then you're pulling the joy out of eternity and bringing it into space, time, and matter where you live and exist right now. Real joy built on real truth from the God of all truth, the God who has set His love upon you, the God who will never let you go, the God who will soon, for all of us, life is fleeting, the God who will soon wipe away every tear and bring you as His child into His presence. Let me close with Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, the great commentator of old, says, All our joy must terminate in God. 
And our thoughts of God must be delightful thoughts. Observe, it is our duty and privilege to rejoice in God and to rejoice in Him always, at all times, in all conditions, even when we suffer for Him or are afflicted by Him. We must not think the worse of Him or of His ways for the hardships we meet with in His service. There is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. He had said it before. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Here he says it again, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy in God is a duty of great consequence in the Christian life. And Christians need to be again and again called to it. If good men have not a continual feast, it is their own fault. Saints, if we have not a continual feast of the joy of the Lord, it is our own fault. We have gone feasting in the sewer of this world. Feast in glory. Feast at the table of the Lord. The banquet table of the Lord has set for you. And your joy will be full. Joy and thanksgiving for imperfect saints. Joy and thanksgiving for a perfect God. We'll continue next time. And our joy and thanksgiving will be fuller yet, I promise you, as we receive God's word with faith, as the Spirit of God illuminates it to our hearts and minds and empowers us to walk in the light thereof. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. True, right, unwavering, not to be doubted, unchallenged by man's fallen thoughts, concepts, theories. We ask, Father, you increase our faith in the Lord Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. May we hold fast to him. May we stand fast in Christ. As brothers and sisters together, may we not be co-psychologists, but co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Co-laborers in the word of Christ. Co-encouragers in the truth of Christ. Father, grant that we would adopt the biblical mindset, the biblical worldview, and reject a worldview that inevitably leads to despair, inevitably leads to anxiety, inevitably leads to less happiness, not more. By your grace, Lord, may we love you with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and all our strength. May we actually actively engage ourselves to that end and love our neighbors as ourselves and cease incessant pursuit of self-love, self-satisfaction. For your glory, Lord, we ask this. For the blessing of our fellow saints, for the blessing of the lost, and we know it will result in our greatest blessing as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.